Welcome to the Lair of Secrets podcast, a podcast exploring the sprawling caverns of gaming, hidden treasures of geekdom, and the unexpected intersections of reality. On this episode of Lair of Secrets, we're talking about pacing your game, including techniques you can use and techniques baked into some of our favorite RPGs. And of course, you can then steal from those RPGs to use in your games. Uh, first, though, we're venturing back into the game room to catch up on some new games and new campaigns. So new game, eh? Yeah. Uh, so we have a we have a friend, uh, former overlord of of a certain secret layer instead of uh, layer of secrets. He collects video games more than anyone else I know. I seem to collect role playing games more than anyone else I know. And I I had seen Iron Sworn uh, a while back. I I don't know if it's got a colon something, but that's the the fantasy version. Um, but then they just had a Kickstarter that they are fulfilling the digital versions of, um, and the the deluxe version, the print version is going to come out. But it's Iron Sworn Starforged. I didn't back it, uh, but I'd been hearing a bunch about it, and I'd been seeing thing. And the thing that really caught me in it was. Uh, that as you play, that there's a mechanism for advancing your connections with other people or other locations, and et cetera. I was both intrigued and a little bit put off because it was spawned from the Powered by, by the Apocalypse games, but it was intriguing enough that I went ahead and, and like dug into it uh, because I'm still looking for ideas for Dyson Fall. And... It is when I say it has evolved from Powered by the Apocalypse. You can you can see that um, I'm trying to make a, a dinosaur chicken reference, but but <laughs> Iron Sworn is uh, Starforged is not the chicken in this sense. Uh, but like this this uh, mean raptor of a game. Uh, I don't know. It's bad metaphor. You know me. I'm bad at, at like doing this stuff live on the podcast. You can see um, they have shared DNA. They do definitely at? have shared DNA. Involved shared DNA. Um, it's a monster robot chicken. Yeah. Velociraptor. But, but the but the uh, the dice mechanic is slightly different. And it, one of the other things that caught me was that it can be played traditionally with like a normal GM, but it's also set up to play solo. Or, and this is the first time I've ever seen it, uh, co-op. So there are oracles and such in the back of the book um, to help you go through your uh, campaign, uh, your your setting, your your games. And as a guide, as they're saying, if you're doing traditionally, you know, as a GM, you can use those and kind of come up with a maybe a plot ahead of time and and run players through it. Uh, But with the way that it is, everyone at the table should have some sort of narrative control. But with the co-op, everyone is kind of creating as things go along. I haven't read it enough to really add it to our pacing discussion, but they do talk about how if your uh, your role is um, a success, that you know it should keep the momentum going they actually have a a chart for for momentum for each player that you you raise your momentum and then you can burn all that momentum uh to uh instead of rolling or in place of a failed roll you can burn the momentum to get like say if your momentum was at a seven you can burn all of that and get the seven as your roll you can also get negative momentum 
So <laughs> as the characters, maybe they're they're having trouble, they're stumbling, you know, they're on the back foot in a movie, that sort of thing. Uh, and you have you have you have negative momentum and then certain moves. And there are a lot of moves, unlike most Powered by the Apocalypse games. This one probably has, you know, dozens or, or scores of moves that you can do. Uh, and again, I haven't dug into it that much. So I may be saying something incorrect here, but <laughs> different moves will allow you to increase momentum if you yeah. succeed at them. And so uh, and if you fail at them, you know, there are consequences and there are ways to do consequences. Um, there are ways to do combat uh, and and such. Uh, and it's kind of a legacy game as well. You can you can go all the way up in your track and then you can retire and you do like a, a, a kind of a legacy move and you create a new character, but that gotcha. new character has uh, some of the, like, isn't just starting from scratch. They're, they're taking over from the other character. Uh, and hmm. it just seems really cool. Um, you know, you have, you have this iron, you can take an iron sworn vow and as, as you're going through and doing this iron sworn vow, it's considered an, like an epic quest for your character. And so you're slowly doing things. Well, you are slowly progressing in your quest. And as you go through and do things that relate to your quest, you get more experience, etc. It just seems really cool. The digital copy comes with not just the books, but also all the cards they they have. Uh, I'm going to hold up just a deck of cards here, but like there's a card and it's got a move on the top, what type of move it is. And then your base, like say this is like an asset, like a like a speeder bike. It has gotcha. a base ability, but then you can spend experience to unlock one of two more abilities that's also on the Ooh, card um, nice. to make it maybe faster or more durable or unique in some way um and all of the moves that pertain to your character fit into that you are all based around a shared spaceship and when you're on that spaceship your own spaceship has i don't remember if it has momentum but it certainly has like its own damage uh and and such that can affect anyone who's on the spaceship at the time because you're you are all flying as a crew gotcha cool yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty darn cool. And again, they, there's a, a whole bunch of uh, of different moves. Um, you know, normally in Powered by the Apocalypse, there's only like like six moves per playbook or whatever, uh, or and maybe a couple of others. Um, this one has moves that that explode out of chests, um, much like <laughs> a certain game that you and I have played, uh, a certain looter shooter that I have played that we have played where guns and swords explode out of chests. Uh, nice segue. Yeah, I tried really hard. <laughs> Tiny Tina's Wonderland. I have played a lot, but oh, uh, really? I you, played a little. You, you said you were thinking about picking it up. This is the first I've heard that you actually picked it up. I did successfully pick it up and I have been play, I play I play I probably played about two hours. I've been on vacation for the last couple of days. And so yesterday, I think I spent an hour playing it. And this morning, I think I played about two hours of it. It's a fun game. I mean, it's it's Borderlands, right? Like it's Borderlands reskinned for fantasy. So Tiny Tina is running a uh, bunkers, bunkers and badasses, badasses game, yep. right? And uh, she's got her whole virtual, t you know, she's got a tabletop and she's got like 
bottle caps that serve as bridges on the overland map and everything has been rethemed so that you have wyverns that throw bombs and you've got uh, you fight dragons and just all kinds of funny stuff but of course it's borderland so you still have guns yeah. right the guns haven't gone away although they have something of a more medieval feel to them grenades are gone replaced by spells yep shields I love the are spells, gone actually. replaced by some kind of armor Wards. but i'm not really that far in so yep. it just it feels like it's got that same sort of like <clears throat> take your brain off the hook shoots lots of stuff get some loot repeat uh and i really like the there's a lot of table talk. So like out of character table talk by the two other quote unquote players. Um, right. You're the newbie um, who's also the, the fate maker, but I don't know why they are a, um, I don't know why they're not characters in the game, but they are just kind of pl- sitting there and, and right. uh, <laughs> you know, watching you uh, play or something, but it's uh It's been a lot of fun. Um, Like my mind outside of work has not been in a place where I want to do stuff that requires a lot of heavy thinking. Um, And so I've played a lot. Um, I played with Chris, who I mentioned before, and uh, our other friend, Natalie, in two separate separate times. So I would I would like to have a full party of four. I think that would be amazing. Yes. Um, yes. Just two people uh, was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and I like, I've liked the Borderlands, the entire Borderlands franchise, but Tiny Tina, they did a few things that improved on it where uh, like in Borderlands three was the, a weak one in my mind. I like, I never, I don't think I ever finished Borderlands three because there was a lot of like, here's this point of interest here now run or get in a catch a ride and drive a very (laughs) long way. And then you can see it. Then you can get into another, another sort of fight. And there was a lot of empty space, at least at the beginning of of Borderlands three and tiny Tina's does not solve, does not have that problem for me there's always a fight that kind of makes sense or if it is kind of a filler fight it's not there's not a long distance between those two things um not yet at least and there's there's a plot uh, that's a bunkers and badasses type plot but also you know as you go along the table talk is like revealing things like uh tina's lived alone for a long long time and you know really just kind of wants more wants her friends to stick around for bunkers and badasses longer sort of thing right (laughs) um and you know and and for a lot of us after covid and being cooped up in our houses by ourselves i empathize with with tina yes very much so and so i got it i got it for ps4 and ps5 you can play it on either and so i've been playing it on the ps4 been going pretty good um you know i mean i i which i would expect given the the legacy of the underlying engine right like borderlands 3 worked just fine on the ps4 so i'm looking forward to playing it on the ps5 when i get back home but uh it's it's been fun i'm looking forward to like hopefully we can get like a bunch of us together online because it would be fantastic to play with four people i played borderlands various versions of borderlands with four people and it just the insanity (laughs) (laughs) it just kicks up you get cooler weapons you get cooler monsters it's just it's fun Yep. Yep. I, and it's cross play. So um, my Windows machine should work with your PS5. So Which that would, would be, be cool. fantastic. So uh, I, I understand you tried to do a PC conversion 
but it didn't work. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had talked about the Atari VCS uh, an episode or two ago, and I said uh, I was hoping to turn it into a, a PC with maybe Steam or Fortnite or whatever for the for my nephews. And well, it didn't go so well. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Atari had uh, there's a video out there of people playing Fortnite on the Atari VCS. Um, and I was technically able to get it to run. You know, I spent like forty dollars on uh, a good, good sized and good speed USB drive um, and put Windows 10 on it and put Fortnite on it. And I could play for a little bit before it ran out of video video RAM and would just freeze. Oh. And this was at the lowest settings possible. Like I could not even turn on the setting of stream in high quality textures or anything else like that. Um, you know, it, it still looked fine. Uh, but the fact that I could only play it for five minutes before it locked up, I don't want to be tech support at, you know, <laughs> nine at night or whatever, when my nephews are trying to play Fortnite and can't. Um, and so, uh, I spent probably three or four hours trying to get it to work, you know, getting things working and such. And, um, it just, I, I was not, I think the, you can increase the RAM in the Atari VCS, which might be what is necessary, but I was not willing to put that much money into uh, the console or at least yet uh, to, <laughs> to turn it into a functional gaming machine. So it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Bad segue goes here. The uh, it is a new year um, and can this is the kind of the new first I've heard about this a little bit because you've been planning a new campaign, but we're supposed to be playing cyberpunk. What's going on here? <laughs> I, got, I got too many things going on. That's why I went on vacation. <laughs> I took this nice little retreat for a couple of days to be by myself, uh, <clears throat> play video games and work on campaigns. So um, this one just kind of spiraled. We uh, you know, it's funny how things work. Like many of my real world campaigns are, are winding down simultaneously. Both of my lunchtime games are winding down. One of them just ended. Um, and our two year old chroniclers D&D campaign just ended. And so, so we started talking about, hey, like what what do we want to do instead? Right. Because we like to rotate DMs with my Sunday gaming group, the Black Razor Guild. And. So I, I pitched some ideas because I've had some ideas that have been kicking around in my brain and people got excited. So uh, new year, new campaigns. And uh, the campaign that I pitched to my group was Elemental Apocalypse, okay. which answers the question, what happens if the when the Temple of Elemental Evil rises, if the heroes can't stop it? So those of you who are not familiar with the Temple of Elemental Evil, it's a big thing in Greyhawk. Um, it came out as, gosh, I have the book here. It was it was teased in yeah. Keep on the Borderlands, which was one of the first modules of D&D, but I think didn't yes. come out for like 10 or maybe even 15 years later. It was it was a yes. huge amount later. <laughs> yes, exactly. So in uh, in the world of Greyhawk, actually, the temple rises several times. Um, there's this initial battle with what's called the, the Elemental Horde, which is formed by a demoness who may or may not be working for the evil god Therisden or may or may not be realizing that she's working for the evil god Therisden. They are defeated in an epic battle with good. Um, 
the the forces of good come and seal away the demoness in this the, the shrine of elemental evil. And several years later, the classic module T one through four, the Temple of Elemental a t- Temple of Elemental Evil comes out, and it's all about like a faction that's trying to liberate her and the heroes that try and stop them. Uh, many years later, I think maybe 20 years later, 15 years later, uh, Wizards of the Coast released a third edition follow-up to that called The Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, which my friends that. and I played through, uh, okay. which we had a great, we had a blast with. We played it, was a, we called it our Red Shirts campaign. So we've, my campaign, my D&D campaign's been around for 20 years or whatever, right? Yeah. And so we decided that we were going to play with the junior members of our guild, the guys who, the Red Shirts, who literally go off, they could be killed at a moment's notice. And so they're the ones who have to save the world. So in this new campaign, the plan is to say, okay, Temple of Elemental Evil rises. The horde of elemental evil wins. The nations of good are broken and the apocalypse comes. And so it flips the classic keep on the borderlands scenario, which I have to give credit to BX Black Razor, which is a which is a blog that talks about basic D&D. And they talk about the secret of keep on the borderlands, which is this. If you are in a murder hobo looting mode, the real target of Keep of the Borderlands should not be the Caves of Chaos, which are where all the humanoid monsters live, right? It okay. should be the keep. The keep <laughs> is where the treasure is. You should okay. sack the keep. Okay. <laughs> the keep has all the good stuff. And uh, at the end of it, you have a keep. So why yeah. wouldn't you want to sack the keep, right? Um, so our take on this, or with the, with the pitch I have, is, is that basically... The, the heroes are going to be hiding out in the Caverns of Hope, a.k.a. the Caves of Chaos, and they are hiding from the apocalypse. Basically, the princes of elemental evil, you know, all of the elemental princes of fire and, and just earth and what have you have risen. Their factions are competing to cause the most destruction possible so that they might free their slumbering god, Therisden. And meanwhile, the heroes are hiding out in the caves of in the caverns of hope and my inspiration for this is basically threefold one is aside from black razor's post um the willow tv series where the next generation rises to deal with an ancient evil and basically looks great doing it um red dawn right the classic like you know teenagers fighting back against the russian invasion right uh, we're not going to talk about the other red dawn movie which i have what never seen red dawn movie yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and Independence Day, which Independence Day is great. Like they just they truly they destroy all the capital cities. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a ragtag band that has to somehow figure out how to fight off the aliens. And and that's basically the premise. Right. So right. it's going to be it's going to be fun. And what I wanted it to be was really just kind of over the top or as over the top as I could get with Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. Right. So I want the PCs to start at a higher level. They're going to be third level. They're going to get bonus feats uh, at third and sixth and 12th level. And we're swapping out inspiration die for liberation dice, which the liberation dice will let you reroll any result, double damage or change a story aspect. So if you're the guy who currently has a whole bunch of elemental cultists chasing you across the parapets of a, of a, of a castle and you're like i got this i want you to jump off the side of the castle i want you to be like doing hand crossbows and blasting away at the cultists nice taking that desperate action and then yeah spending a liberation die to say yeah of course i have a grappling hook and you whip it up or of course the others are there to catch me or of course there's a wagon that i definitely like 
bounce into and then roll and pop up and like, you know, give a tip of the hat to uh, the evil cultists who are now, you know, sh- sh- uh, sh- shouting at me from the, the top of the, the castle. Right. I want nice. that kind of action. So, so kind I'm of hoping the, that kind so of the yeah. flashback mechanic in uh, the blades in the dark sort of sort of games a little bit. or could be in so much as that like in the moment like I, what i want is dnd and as we, we talked about this before and it kind of goes to pacing right like people spend too much time in their own heads coming up with their own plans and i think other games like savage worlds or fate um encourage you to take risks right like yeah. because you you're getting these dice the co- like cortex system you're getting these dice that encourage you to do a thing which then you do something awesome so you get more dice and i want to have that sort of positive feedback but within fifth edition and i want the characters to feel awesome right like i'm not gonna like evil will be evil right like they're not going to be incompetent but i want the pcs to feel like they could do something really cool and actually pull it off, which isn't necessarily always the case in D&D. Nice. So we'll see how it goes. Everybody's nice. excited about it. So <laughs> and we're doing like the heroic tier for point buy, right? So not just your standard fantasy buy, like everybody's going to have good characters who should be able to do pretty impressive things. That's that sounds pretty awesome. Is there like for the liberation dice, is this something that you came up with or is this something that you found somewhere or? Like how it's, I, I can't. So the, the story, the cha- story aspect, I think um, that's com- that's from Cortex. There's a lot of different role playing right. games that do that. I think they had story dice in uh, third edition, too, um, at least in I think it was in Dungeon Masters, too. Um, the reroll any result and just automatically double damage are just like limitations that I see with inspiration with inspiration. Right. And mm-hmm. and also the tendency I have seen is that people hoard inspiration dice because there's yeah. only one. Yeah. Right? Like, and so you use it at that one moment and then DMs have a tendency to forget about them or to, or to encourage people to spend them. Right. So I want them to be in the forefront of their minds that I've got these dice and I can spend them and yeah. I'm going to get, I'm going to get them back because the more cool things I do, the more dice I'm going to get. Right. Yes. And so we'll play with it as it goes, but that, it's like taking all of the lessons that we have learned from layer of secrets over the last two years. <laughs> cool. And bearing them cool. into one dice mechanic. So we'll but, see how it goes. And part of my question there was, so if if this is like a amalgamation of a bunch of different things, can we expect an article on it on the layer? Yeah. That you can I then hand so. your players as here's how liberation <laughs> dice work. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. I can do it's I'm, gonna be fairly straightforward, but uh we'll see. I'm sold. I'm 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 curious to see how this experiment works. And, and, and I pitched it like that. Like, and I got to say the, if I have, a, I'll, I'll throw a link to it in the show notes, my inspiration, like the thing that's, that got me off, um, off the pot on this, uh, that like said, I really actually want to run this and I will figure out how to find the time to actually write the adventure. Cause I should be working on cyberpunk red, but that's okay. Folks. <laughs> I, I am working on cyberpunk red. I have a book. I've, I've been taking notes really. I've been doing my homework. Okay, but um, was watching the third episode of Willow. At the end of that episode, they they bring in tracks, uh, like remastered tracks or redone tracks um, of popular songs. And I think we may have talked about this briefly before. Briefly. But the, the yep. end at the end of the third episode, there is this awesome rendition of Enter Sandman, Enter Sandman by Metallica, and between the end credits basically like as they fade into the end credits like they're looking out upon this apocalyptic wasteland 
And I haven't watched episode four yet, so I don't actually know what that thing is. <laughs> but it's obviously a place that has been ravaged by magic, and they're about to head into it. And then the notes of Enter Sandman start, and then they do these kind of sketch-based um, outros where, like, they render the different characters. And yep. it, just, it all looks so awesome. Like, okay, I want a campaign that captures that feel with these lyrics. <laughs> cool. As I said, I'm sold. How are you going to pace these Gonzo games? That is an excellent question because I th- I don't know I think uh, I think I'm gonna have to experiment with it because I want I don't want it to be slow and plotting right like I want to be able to just kind of set I don't I don't want it to just be a hex crawl right like I want I want it to be like Robin Hood right like I want yeah. it to be pretty obvious the things that you can take on and there's some horrible evil that you could go fight over there there's like some injustice to be righted there like it's going to be obvious and you're not going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about it <laughs> and I and I think it's it, it also seems like you're taking a page from the older spirit of the century where the players the protagonists those characters are proactive they're not yes. waiting to get handed oh, here's here's this dungeon over here you have to go delve in, you know, or, hey, there's a dark stranger in the corner tavern uh, who's going to give you all your quests. They're going out and they know what the problem is. You know, they know the temple is rising. Let's go out there and kick some butt or they know the temple is already won. I should say, let's let's go fight for our freedom. Yeah, so I think the, the, the initial setup, I'm env- envisioning season one is going to be the liberation of the keep or the destruction of the keep. I don't want to presuppose what the players are going to do. Right. And so I want to keep it shorter and tighter than our usual campaign, because as I th- believe I've mentioned before, we like we start campaigns and they run for years. Mm-hmm. So I could see having like a 12 episode essentially arc where they're dealing with the threat of uh, the elemental eye, which rules of the former Kendall keep and dealing with the various factions that are out there. And then they capture the keep. And then what do you do? Like they learn, maybe there's a chance to stop the apocalypse, right? That this apocalypse has been ongoing, but maybe we can take out an elemental prince. Maybe there's a way to prevent them from summoning Therizden and destroying the multiverse. Right. And so I think that sets up season two. And that could also set up, like I had mentioned to them as we were talking the, the through the story, it could be that's when the higher level characters show up and go, we're impressed because it's kind of like at the nice. end of um, was it Peacemaker where like they've dealt with the, the, the horrible situation and then uh, the Justice League shows up and they're mm. like, good job. And of course, they were like, why weren't you here before? But in yeah. any case, yeah. <laughs> like it could be, you know, you've liberated the keep. We've got some ideas about what you can do next. Right. And and um, I kind of wanted to, to like I'm resisting the urge to pull out the Mythic D6 book because there's um, <laughs> there there there's a section in there called an anatomy of an act. And there's some ideas in there that when you were saying you wanted to keep the pace quick, we'll get to that. But I think what we need to do first is like, why does pacing matter? Why should you pace your game? What is pacing? You know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good point. So you want to take it from there? <laughs> I, I was going to say, uh, like, pacing is anyone who's seen a movie, anyone who's read a book um, knows when the pacing is, and I'm not even going to say exciting, but interesting enough that it keeps you wanting to move forward through the movie or the book. Yes. And you, 
like leaves you a little bit disappointed that it's over. A poorly paced movie is like you're looking at your watch and going, oh, my God, it's already been an hour and I still have another half an hour to go. Um, whereas a well paced uh, movie is like, holy crap, that was three hours long and I still want more. Pacing matters. Keeping the interest of your players, keeping your own interest as a GM really matters. That's kind of like how I define pacing. I don't know if you would have anything to add to that, take away from that. Yeah, I, th I, I think that's exactly right. And I think pacing, you notice pacing the most when it's not done well. Yeah. <laughs> and so actually, I think you could steal a page from Marvel uh, as if you look at the Marvel's release schedule up to the original Avengers, right? I think that was an example of it, the individual movies were reasonably well paced, like they kept you engaged. You wanted more. Right. And there was those little teasers at the end of like the post credit scenes that set up the next thing that was going to happen. And you're like, yeah. I want to be in the theater for the next one. Right. Yeah. Um, and they were releasing two to three movies a year, maybe three to four movies a year, depending on how things went. But you could see it was building towards something and you wanted to go to the next movie because like man, this is going to be cool. And when you finally got to the Avengers and it all actually came together, you're like, wow, this is fantastic. And you sat in that movie and you just, you just loved it. And then you went and you watched it again and you watched it again. As opposed to, if you look at on the DC side of the house, the pacing is all over the place. There was no buildup. They went right to the end. You get to Justice League. Like, it's just, it's 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 a mess. And it feels yeah. like a mess. And then you go to the next, the next DC movie comes out and you're like, I don't know, man. I was burned before. And so I mean, I think I RPGs can have the same sort of effect. Yeah, like I I felt no desire to see like Batman v Superman. I never saw because it just didn't interest me because there wasn't a build up. Like even in in the Marvel ones, that post credits or double post credits set of scenes in there set up future movies and tied in the next characters that were coming in those movies in a lot of ways and gave you an, an anticipation for that next movie. Whereas the DC stuff didn't really do that. They were all like sort of standalone characters. And then when I watched the Justice League movie twice, because, you know, one was Joss Whedon, <laughs> one was Zack Snyder, um, like, it's just a bunch of these characters coming together. It wasn't like these characters had met before or it wasn't these characters had had done stuff before to bring them together. They were just kind of brought together. I don't right. remember a whole lot about it. Aquaman was probably my favorite of the set. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of because it was over the top and didn't really have as much touch with reality as some of the others but again i didn't watch all the others either so um, right yeah it was out of sequence. like even now i can't remember even even now i can't remember quite the order in which things came out yeah right like it's uh and so that just that goes to show and i think that's part of the problem with the dc universe is it feels like an old school D D campaign right and back in the day i mean the way things were uh you just you just did it right. Like you came yeah. up with your adventure. You might follow, you know, if you took uh, some creative writing courses or something, you might try and divide it up into three acts. But I think by and large, I think it was mostly just 
you come up with the adventure, even basing off of modules, like modules were often open-ended, like mm-hmm. the pace was set by the players. Um, or maybe if you were being railroaded by your DM, you know, he would lay out the, he or she would lay out the specific path that you should be on and then like whacked you with a God hammer if you ventured off of it. But it, the story structure wasn't necessarily there to help drive things forward or to give you those moments of like, you know, random encounters were truly random encounters. Is this a right. good place to put in a, a cliffhanger style action or to put in like a, a sudden like throw down with a rival gang of adventurers eh, i rolled it up uh, on a chart now, yeah it's like oh the the rules told me to roll right now the roll tells me that goblins attack so goblins attack it just rolled my campaign but that's okay hey look at this deck of many things it came up on the random treasure chart yeah, yeah. <laughs> now i've had i'm not trying to slag our past selves or even current <laughs> people who I mean, enjoy the style of play but it, it's chaotic and i've seen more campaigns get derailed by a misplaced deck of many things than i've seen succeed <laughs> yeah and and i think when it comes to pacing I would not be playing these games now had I not played those games back then. Um, I enjoyed them enough. Uh, the, uh, but you know, when you're preteen or, or early teens and you're playing, you haven't had those creative writing courses. You haven't learned about plot or structure or anything else like that. But as you grow and you learn more, about what makes a good game, or maybe you've stumbled into, this was an awesome game. And then you're like, why was this an awesome game? (laughs) Um, And like, this is kind of our, how we kind of know what awesome games feel like. Let's talk about pacing to try to make games awesome more times uh, than not. Right. And I think, you know, I think that's the thing about uh, actually the season two of uh, the legend of uh, Vox Machina. Am I saying that right? Machina? Okay. Vox Machina. Yeah. Vox Machina. Like that is based off of a D&D campaign that was like, you know, live stream. Right. But you can see the, you know, the, the, it's ad hoc roots, right? Like you can see where they must have been just like riffing, but you can also see like there's pacing there, right? There is a story that carries itself forward. And obviously they clean it up for, you know, creating an animated series, but that's the kind of thing that I think people go, Oh yeah, that's what I want my game to be like. Um, have you seen season two yet? I didn't know if it, I didn't actually know it was out yet. I think it just dropped. Okay. Yeah. So future episode, perhaps, <laughs> um, I enjoyed the first season. First season was pretty good. There was there was I like I think it suffers a little bit from pacing. Like there are some oh, things well. <laughs> in there that had some pacing, but there was it jumped around a lot. And I'm sure it that it was around. they're they're taking a multi-year uh campaign and distilling it down to what like 13 episodes. Yeah, something like that. Or or whatever whatever that first season was and at the very beginning of the show, they fight a dragon. You know, it's like right. that doesn't happen in and when, you know, that doesn't happen in D&D at first level, you know. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, it, there are, it, it it's a different medium, so it's going to be paced a little differently. Yeah, it was definitely choppy. That's why I can say you can see. You can see that it's D&D roots. Yes. But at the same time, it kept me coming back. <laughs> yeah. Whereas there's another there's another um, animated uh, uh, Legend of Lotus War. Uh, it's an anime. Uh, and 
I watched it back in college and I still think it's probably pretty good, but that one was pretty well paced and it was actually based on the author's campaign. But I think it's again, based on not, right. not <laughs> trying to truly retell the story that, you know, a million people might have already seen, you know, right. I don't know how many people watch uh, critical role or watched that first season, but it was a lot. Um, and yes. so they and and their Kickstarter got well over a million dollars. So they had to kind of remain true to the original season. And right. so or the original campaign. And so, uh, you know, so that's that that stricture may have hindered uh, and made it a little more choppy than they might have liked to have made the story. Um, right. But I, th I still think it came out pretty well. Yeah. So talking about so one of the things that we've seen as we've been playing the, the various games that we've been playing at the secret the layer of secrets for the last several years um, is different games that have different um, pacing mechanics that are built into them. And and actually, in part of actually doing my homework, uh, <laughs> Cyberpunk Red actually has a system for this. It's called a beat chart. Yeah. Um, so page page three ninety five. Yes. If you want to um, read along at home. Um, they also have a downloadable PDF of just this section, I believe. Um, right, scripting the game, a few good beats. Yes. And so the 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 idea here is that um, with a beat chart, you 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 break the game up into beats and each beat takes about 30 minutes. And a typical adventure consists of a hook, the thing that gets you started in the game that, that draws the players along, that gets people engaged. A development cliffhanger, perhaps multiple developments and cliffhangers, right? So like they they tend to alternate them. So in one of their uh, you know in their example beat charts, and and actually I think this is a fantastic thing that they did in Cyberpunk Red. A lot of times when you have fiction in a role playing game book, it's really just there as flavor text to help you understand the setting. Mm -hmm. They actually use it to help explain how to run a game, <laughs> and yeah. not in a like example from the old DMG. DM says this, player says this, but they're like, hey, we've got this short fiction and this is how it corresponds to the beats that we suggest you use. So it's got right. a hook to get you started. It's a development. There's some sort of thing where they learn something in the game. Cliffhanger, ambush, attack, um, some sort of a fight or dramatic action, the climax, and then a resolution with each one of those taking about 30 minutes. And then you can... The adventures... Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, like... Something we we had, we have in our notes, but we haven't talked about is like like when you're like why to pace your game. One of the reasons might be that you have a time box, you know, like you only have right. three hours or four hours and having or or if you have eight hours, maybe you have an eight hour session, you know, marathon session coming up in a weekend um, and you want to pace it. Well, if you're going to use these story beats, you know that each beat is about a half an hour. So you can actually, you know, put in more, uh, you know, development cliffhanger climaxes to, you know, fill out those uh, those story beats to fill out your eight hours. Right. And so it, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, I think. You know, as I'm as I was going through and reading this chapter, I was excited because they give you examples of each of these things. There's multiple examples of developments, multiple examples of cliffhangers. A lot of them are just like riffing off of the tropes of the genre and other related genres like, you know, the cop show or the heist movie or that kind of thing. Um, 
and I got to thinking about what our, you know, our cyberpunk red game will probably be about three hours long. They recommend about a four to five hour game. And so for us, we're going to have fewer beats. So how can you make the most efficient use of your beats if you know that the hook and the climax and the resolution are all going to take 30 minutes? Well, now I only have a budget of basically 90 minutes to play with the rest of the adventure if I'm yep. trying to make it self-contained in one evening. Right. Yeah. Um, and it may be that it's not possible. It may be that, you know, the you need to set it up so that your budget spawns sprawls over two <clears> weeks. Right. But, you know, I'm going to try. I think I think it's a reasonable budget, you know, with yeah. with three hours, you can still basically get in like six beats. And I think that could be reasonable, you know, depending on depending on how you set it up. And some could be yeah. a little bit shorter than others. Yeah, um, like like. The, us knowing that it's on a stream, we may allow for the hook to be a little, uh, allow the characters to be hooked a little faster than right. a half an hour. Um, right. But we do tend to go off on tangents. So your mileage may be Yeah. And, and the challenge, I don't want to, like, I think this would be good for a follow up or maybe a little standalone episode. I'm working on my first scenario now for Cyberpunk Red. And the thing that I'm thinking as I'm putting together the adventure is, you know, this it almost presupposes that you're going to there's going to be a structure to the campaign and people or to the episode and that players are going to follow it. But players never follow anything. Right. <laughs> so I'm feeling like what I need to be doing is and, and I don't want to over over prep because we talked mm -hmm. about the dangers of over prepping before. Right. But it feels like it's you have maybe. Yeah, I can see developments going these two ways and I can see these three climax or these three um, cliffhangers. And I think the cliffhanger, like the climax is probably going to be the same no matter what. And like just laying out like high level what I think it would be, making sure that I have the necessary mooks off to the side. I have the stat boxes for the things that I expect you guys might do. Right. Um, and then just go with it. Right. But also, I think the idea of the beats although it implies a, a more rigid structure, I think understanding that, hey, I'm looking at the clock, I'm like, I'm trying to get this done in 30 minutes because I want to maintain the, the pace of a cyberpunk red game, right? And so I think even if you're not following the exact structure, knowing that I have kind of this clock ticking in the back of my head, I don't say that in a negative way and that it's creating like a stress where I have to be a slave to the game. If the, if things are going well, then they're going well, mm -hmm. but also it's cyberpunk red. I think it's meant to be a faster paced game, right? I think it's meant to not get hung up on three hours of prepping for the heist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in going through the beat chart and seeing how well uh, cyberpunk edge runners fits with it mm. <laughs> i mean it is a, it is and remember the, like it's a completely different media it's not a game yes. it's a it's a it's a show it's a series of shows and so it's this is pulled a little bit from uh and i think they talk about it you know whether a show movie or role-playing adventure you need a script uh telling you where the action's going and so like they're pulling it from that sort of thing and and calling it a beat sheet is something that is used in like script writing or uh, uh, there's actually uh, a funny funnily named one uh, out there called the save the cat beat sheet um, <laughs> used for plotting, you know, either either a script for a movie or for books, uh, because it comes back to movies where if you want to show 
that uh, a protagonist or, or someone ha- is good at heart, um, they'll save the cat in a, in a dangerous <laughs> situation sort of thing. Um, but the beat sheet is to like give your give your whole thing a structure so that it, it, it can be paced well. Um, and I think right. this is partly where that comes from. Yeah, I can see that. So I'm, I'm just I'm curious to see how my my beat sheet survives the encounter with the real world. And part of right. it is we need to have our session zero. Once I know what the, who the players are and who, the, who their characters are, I have a reasonable chance of knowing what you guys are most likely to do. Are you going to be most likely espionage or you're most likely going to be like, no, nope, we're going in guns blazing. Yep. Right. Like the characters will help inform the decisions oh, that you make. It is totally easier as a GM to plot out your next adventure if you've been playing the campaign for three to six or uh, 12 months than if you are just starting the game with brand new brand new characters, even if they're all the same player or like yes. your, your old older players. Yes. So talking about another pacing mechanic, you know, I, I as we were putting together our notes, um, I completely missed this. And I, I, we've talked about them so much, which is clocks yep. from Blades in the Dark. But uh, Group Proof uh, called it out. So thank you on Dice Camp. He, he mentioned, hey, you guys got to talk about clocks. So, yep. hey, David, you want to talk about clocks? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> as, as people who've listened to the show in the past, I love clocks. Um, <laughs> you know, I have I have pulled clocks from from Blades in the Dark, which is, I believe, another Powered by the Apocalypse game setting. I've pulled them to use in 5th edition D&D. Scum and Villainy is another Powered by the Apocalypse based on Blades in the Dark uh, sort of game. And it's they're they're now I'm now I'm double. uh, Now I am uh, doubting myself that it's a uh, that it's a (laughs) Powered by the Apocalypse game. Someone will correct me, Um, but it's derived from. Yeah, regardless (laughs) Uh, clocks are um, clocks are pretty amazing. They they kind of had them in uh, in Fate or uh, in Spirit of the Century, but it's a way to ratchet up tension. If you're uh, mess up a die roll on your sneaking, the guards don't instantly find you, but the GM might put up a clock. Um, and maybe it's only like four segments of like guards are alerted or alarms go off and they fill in that first section because you failed that role. And now you realize you only have like three other screw ups or maybe only one major screw up before that <laughs> clock is full and the guards are alerted. You know, you could also have another one of like the ship is sinking in a you know in a <laughs> some sort of maybe you're in a submarine maybe you're in a, on a wooden tall ship pirate ship or whatever and you have uh, you have a clock for the ship is sinking and doesn't matter what you're doing like in combat or whatever uh, that clock slowly fills and it kind of ratchets up uh, the tension and makes you react to it and hopefully become proactive and and move the story forward uh, and get your character out of danger uh, or get whatever needs to get out of danger out of danger. Save that cap. Right. (laughs) And I think they also can be used as like that higher level campaign mechanic for, you know, tracking progress towards completing a project. Right. Or, you know, the cultists plan right and filling like it could be happening over the you know six seven eight sessions and 
you know, eventually you reveal the clock and it's already got two pieces. Yep. <laughs> right. You know, how many more pieces do you have left before um, before the cultists succeed? Right. So I think there's there's ways to use it at like a campaign level as well as like the individual session level, which is cool. Iron, Iron Sworn Starforged actually also has a, a it's it's oriented linearly instead of in a, a clock like circle. But it's the same thing where if you maybe you do an iron sworn vow to uh, like in your new campaign to defeat the temple of elemental evil. And that, and maybe that's just a group quest uh, as you progress in it, as you succeed in different tasks, you make tick marks to show your progress in actually defeating the temple. Right. The, uh, so going on to uh, another game. So I've talked about it a couple of times, uh, the alien role playing game, just a couple uh, just a couple, mostly talking longingly <laughs> about it, but I did actually get it out of its box set. I have the starter set, uh, which includes the adventure Chariot of the Gods. And um, aliens can be played in two separate ways. And I think it's the one I want to talk about is the cinematic mode. So basically, there's a campaign mode and a cinematic mode. And with a campaign mode, that's more like an ongoing alien uh, aliens adventure. Your characters may not survive, but somebody else will tag in. But the expectation is that characters are going to live a little bit longer. The story will go over multiple sessions with cinematic. It's essentially a one shot that is recreating the horror tension and pacing of your average alien movie, um, good or bad. Cool. <laughs> cool. Right. So this is your Prometheus, your alien, your alien covenant, what have you. Um, not so much alien versus predator. And in cinematic, it's 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 divided into three acts. And I think the key thing about the cinematic mode, at least from my perspective, is as the DM and as players, you're going in knowing that this is a cinematic mode. Like you shouldn't surprise your players with this information. Part of the setup is this is cinematic mode. And this is how cinematic mode is a little different. There are going to be three acts and those acts are going to arrive regardless of what you do. Right? <laughs> things are going to happen and things are going to progress. Just like in the original alien movie, once somebody is infected <clears throat> with the alien, it's only a matter of time until that alien bursts out of that person's chest. And then it's only a matter of time until it turns into a full blood alien. And it's only a matter of time until it starts killing off everybody. It doesn't right. matter what you do. The alien is coming. <laughs> right. Now, and you might have been able to different. stop it earlier. <laughs> like, like some people may think, uh, think of that as railroading, but it's different than railroading. You know, it's it's there are external forces that are beyond your player's control that, you know, the hurricane is coming. Right. Um, you don't have weather control powers. I mean, if you're in D&D, &D, maybe you do. But you know, you know, you don't normally have weather control powers. And right. so the hurricane <laughs> is going to hit land and uh, it's going to destroy things. How are you going to be proactive and reactive to the situation that is coming? Right. And there's certainly wiggle room within it. There are opportunities to put yourself in a better or worse place based on on how the story is going to progress. And mm -hmm. the cool thing about the the the, um, the scenarios, they have three box sets that are out now that form basically a trilogy, is that they have individual cards. So they have like a character card, which gives I'm trying to hold it up to the screen. I can't really see very well because the lighting's not great where I am. But it calls out who's your buddy, who's your rival. Right. Okay. Um, talks about your personal agenda. So in this particular case, uh, there's a character named Horton. They're a mechanic. Their agenda is to help crewmates escape from the ship 
uh, help their crewmates get out of the situation alive. That's their overall agenda that's driving them through the adventure. Um, but they also have agenda cards. And so what the agenda cards do is tell you this is your character's motivation in Act 1. And then in Act 2, the motivation changes. And in Act 3, it changes again. And so when you might start off with, where's my agenda cards here? So let's see. Yes, we had, I'm going to see if I can find Horton. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with Miller. So uh, in the first act, uh, there's, you know, follow the company protocol, get the job done, cash in, don't do anything to risk your paycheck, right? And so spoilers, I suppose, <laughs> if you're going to be playing Alien, I won't go into all of them, but that, that agenda evolves over time. So if you have a character who's selfish, all they're trying to do is get their money and get off this damn ship, right? And so yep. in the second act, it might become... That, that intensifies, right? And right. so you, you, you might twist to be like, actually, and originally it's like, get off the ship and see if you can get your friends out with you. Eventually it becomes, you know, I, I just will do anything possible off. to get me off this ship, yep. right? Um, and so it's cool how it evolves. And it's then like, the- Like Burke in Aliens. You right. know, it's in exactly the first like one, Burke he's like, alien. I'm, I'm here, I'm with the company. I care about the the- the colonists i want to check in on them you know secretly he's like i know there's aliens here let's see how the colonists fared and then you know like act two he's trying to he's saying oh gee uh all the colonists are dead but they do have uh these specimens and there's this live one here if i can get one of them infected then we could get the alien back to the company and that'll be a big bonus for me um, and maybe and, I can kind of deal with some of these colonial Marines who are just grunts. Yeah. Right. And then at the end, it's like, oh, man, I'm in over my head. I'm running. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And in the game, you get you get awarded points for how well you hold to your agenda by the game master, which then enables you to do certain things within the game. But I think it's an interesting mechanic. And I think the key the key thing for these cinematic scenarios is buy in up front. You know that you're going to be playing one of these scenarios. And so I think it sets a different expectation. There's a good chance your character is going to die, but that's okay. We have other characters you can tag in as, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think by setting up the three act structure, by telling people this is, it's meant to be cinematic, you're setting expectations and everybody's buying into the pacing because you know, in like, you're going to play for two hours and boom, act two arrives. Right. Right. And I right. think that's a, like you say, it could come across as railroady, but I think it's really just a shared consensus, right? Like, no, this is what we're doing. Cool. We're, yeah. we're playing an alien movie. <laughs> yep. Yep. I like it. So um, another one that we have experience with is fate. Yes. Um, and, you know, fate's a little bit different. And like, so this, this kind of goes some to pacing it, in the, I struggled with this when I ran my adventure for our fate campaign because I was just having a hard time coming up with what the adversaries were and trying to understand how things worked. And I stole this little uh, quote from the adversary toolkit. Um, and it says, as we talk about adversaries in this book, keep in mind that the fate, the fate factual, everything is a character. Uh, from Fate Core, page 270. Uh, an adversary is not necessarily a person, monster, or a kind of creature you can punch. Rather, it's a thing that exists to hinder, challenge, or oppose players. And there are three kinds of adversaries that Fate talks about, which is enemies, obstacles, and constraints. And I thought that was cool in thinking about pacing, because on the one hand, when it comes to the adversaries as NPCs, 
they definitely like recommend a progression in that book where you're, you're, you're fighting the mooks to begin with, and then you're working your way up through the food chain, and eventually you have the boss battle. And there may be many boss battles along the way, but that's right. kind of the progression that they're talking about. And they offer you spreads that talk about like how you can use these different scenarios. There's fantasy ones, or urban fantasy, like that kind of thing. But the thing that I thought was also cool was the idea of obstacles and constraints as adversaries, right? So obstacles being... Uh, yeah, you're about to get the good guy, but or get the bad guy, but ooh, there's a bus full of innocents about to go plunging off that cliff. What do you do, hotshot? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think um, with with fate, I think one of the things that probably hindered you, because we're basically making up our own setting, um, fate is a generic system, and so yes. you can play so many different types of games with fate. Um, you know, originally, and and I'm going to pull this forward. Uh, from from the notes that I put in, what Spirit of the Century was the first Fate game, ostensibly. I, I yeah, um, yeah, the first published Fate <laughs> game. Um, it was originally based on Fudge, which was a, a which is still around, um, but it's a, a universal sort of role playing game, fully open sourced in in some ways, uh, which is how Fate came to be because they twisted the dials on it to make it into itself. Because it is a pulp pickup role playing game, you know, you're supposed to sit down (laughs) and you play a session or a few sessions of it. And it's supposed to feel like an Indiana Jones or Phantom, you know, slam evil sort of thing or or the shadow or whatever. It has the pulp plot framework, which is similar to what we've talked about pacing wise before. Uh, But it's like a a way to organize your adventure to pace it, you know, so you endanger the characters, then you reveal that true danger, like that first danger was maybe some mooks coming up and shooting at you. But then you reveal that the true danger is this ancient, you know, this ancient Mesopotamian spirit that's in control of something. Then uh, the pursuit encounters complications. Then there's certain doom, the twist. (laughs) Then there's the final showdown and then the optional breakneck escape. You know, the like if you think about the mummy, you endanger the characters. So O'Connell is in the fight with uh, with unknown attackers at some point. You know, things happen, more role playing stuff happens, but then they're back at uh at the valley and then the true danger is revealed as the mummy itself you know and then you know at the end with the final showdown they have the final showdown with the mummy but then with the op- the breakneck escape is the whole pyramid that in fact the whole valley is collapsing <laughs> they got to get out of there um you right. know it totally fits the pulp framework but not all games are like that not all not all media is like that you know the avengers didn't do that you know the avengers defend at the end you know defend new york and win they don't have to escape new york because it's about to get blown up right (laughs) what we're talking about here with pacing also think about what type of game you want to run and or play uh, because all of these different things that we're talking about with pacing with like fate and such um or alien like the way you pace your game influences the mood in your game as well. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's where the, the, the idea of constraints that um, they talk about in the adversary toolkit, um, a bomb counting down uh, ritual nearing its conclusion. sounds like clocks to me, does. but you know, the, the idea that there is a constraint that causes the campaign or the adventure to move ahead, like, 
You know, if you think about uh, Die Hard 3, there are bombs scattered throughout New York City. Oh, yeah, that one. And you have to deal with the bombs. You can't just like, why are we running all over New York City trying to disarm these things? Because the terrorist is making us and there's a count and there's a time constraint because the bomb's going to go off at three o'clock if you can't solve this riddle. Meanwhile, it's all just a cover for a gold heist. (laughs) Yep. And then and then at one point, the heroes have to realize we can't keep going after all these bombs. We have to go after the the big person who's setting this stuff off because it's not just going to be about these other bombs. You know, there there's going to be this run really big bomb or something else like that that's going to happen. Right. It's a different way, way, a way to pace things where suddenly the hero's going from reacting the entire time to being proactive and chasing the villain. Right. And I think, you know, going back to your question you asked me at the beginning, like, what is the pacing of element of the elemental apocalypse game? And, you know, I have to sit down and kind of storyboard it a little bit to figure out like how I think it's going to go. But this isn't going to be a really long running campaign. I feel like this is like maybe it's going to go on for a year and it's going to have two dozen episodes uh, broken up into two seasons because you know what? The princes are near freeing Thursden. And the players are going to figure out, like, we need to do something about this. This isn't an open-ended hex crawl where you can do whatever the heck you want. The world's still going to be there tomorrow. (laughs) Maybe you want to start them at fifth level. Yeah, I thought about that. That was my debate, right? Like, start them at third or start them at fifth. But I think I wanted to to, to progress very quickly. So um, I think they might be at fifth, like, within, within, you know, a couple of sessions. Um, Because I wanted him to have that feeling of like them coming in, like a bit of the hero's journey, a little bit of them coming into their own. Right. Like, you know, they've been training in the caverns for for months or for their entire lives. Now they're these teenagers that are ready to go out and kick butt. And the first couple of adventures don't go that great. But then, you know, they hit their stride and now they're ready to take on the keep. Right. So we'll see. We'll throw those fireballs a little bit. Throw those fireballs. That's right. Talking about the the pacing and and like the mood of the game, um, you know, our next one that that uh, we've played in the past, uh, Tales from the Loop, is a very different vibe. You know, the yes. movie E.T. <laughs> is not the same pacing as the Avengers, which is also not the same pacing as Indiana Jones. You know, as Ken was talking about it to, with me when we were talking about earlier, it's like something weird happens. And then something normal happens. The way that Tales from the Loop organizes thing is like the mystery, you know, or the adventure, if you want to put it in another term. But the mystery is usually like it's kind of a Scooby-Doo thing. Um, right. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so you introduce the each kid at the beginning of the mystery, you know, because he, a lot of the mysteries in here are self-contained so they might be run as a one shot you won't necessarily have the same group of kids playing the next one uh as i think what they're uh intimating here uh but each but each kid gets a scene from their own everyday life with or without some trouble and then you introduce the mystery where the kids are encountering or discovering something that they can start to investigate uh and then they start solving the mystery they start going to different locations they discover some clues um, they overcome some trouble as they're as they're going along. At the same time, they're managing their everyday life. You know, like maybe their parents are getting divorced, or one of them's getting beat up by a bully at school. Uh, that sort of thing. And this is that that solving the mystery is where a lot of scenes take place. But then, similar to the pulp 
sort of thing. There's a showdown. Uh, the kids have solved the mystery. Uh, if you view it in Scooby-Doo, this is like, hey, we finally built Fred's trap and we're going to try and trap the ghost. <laughs> um, but you're, you're trying to stop what's happening uh, often in a dramatic scene. Uh, and then, uh, and then you, you know, that resolves and then there's an aftermath. So the mystery has been solved. And even if the kids are successful, their lives, they go back to their lives, which haven't really changed from before. You know, their parents are still getting a divorce. They're still dealing with that bully at school. And you do another scene from each kid as they, you know, those players tell about like what's happening in their life. And then at the end, the players can change their kids' problems or a different aspect of themselves to represent that they have gone through this mystery and come out the other side. And they have changed, even if the world around them hasn't realized it yet. Right. Growing up. Growing up. Yep. Which is another reason why you don't necessarily have uh, those same kids doing another mystery because those kids have changed. Um, you right. can, uh, I mean, that's what that whole last change piece is for. Like you're mechanically changing your character, but the next time you play, you're not the same kid thematically. You may be Bobby, but you're not the same Bobby that you were. You're not as innocent. You're not as childlike as you were before. You're, right. You've grown up a little. Right. So as we're talking about pacing, I would say, you know, we, we, we began this talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and I think historically it's probably suffered from pacing the most. Now, that having been said, that's from my personal perspective, and I think a lot of it came to a head with what uh, I've heard called and which we've called it ourselves, um, the five minute workday. And so <laughs> this kind of hit its peak in third edition D&D, where like my gaming group would spend three hours figuring out which spells we were going to cast to go take out the, you know, a big bat or go into a dungeon or something, right? You power up, you go in, you weigh waste to everything around you. Um, you've expended all of your powers, you teleport out, you rest for a day, and then you do it again. There's absolutely no reason in the game to stay in that dungeon one minute later than you need to, um, unless yep. you as the DM start throwing up, oh yeah, the anti-teleportation fields are in effect now, and you know other random reasons why. Yeah, oh or, yeah, it turns out you can't, pass wall through the these very specially crafted stone walls right right um it's, it it's like in a story strike. like <laughs> suddenly your cell phone doesn't have signal you know it's right. that same sort of idea <laughs> of like we haven't figured out it from a narrative standpoint how to deal with cell phones so we're just going to make them not work right <laughs> Right. You know, so I think that was it was a very challenging is I mean, I, we had a lot of fun with third edition. I'm not trying to slag third edition, but it definitely could suffer from that. And even um, first edition suffered from that, like at the low levels, at least, you know, it's like you go in your mage has one spell. Right. I use magic missile. I use magic <laughs> missile or sleep. Um, right. And that's it. And it's like, OK, got it. Gotta leave for 24 hours or we're bedding down here for 24 hours. You know, it was only later when you got a huge bank of hit points and a, a, a good number of spells. But at the same time, the back then, the adventures and the monsters were not as tuned as they are right. in like, you know, from third edition onward. If you fought orcs when you're fifth level, you're going to mop up 
like 20 orcs without without barely breaking a sweat. Um, right. And that's not the case in later editions. You know, they they kind of scale up with you, um, especially right. in fifth edition. You know, fifth edition fighting an orc at 17th level is, you know, they can still hit you. Right. And you, you know, whereas, you know, in first edition, it's like, well, I have I have negative eight armor class. Good luck, dude. You know, right. <laughs> so I think they, they tried to solve this mechanically in fourth edition. And I think, you know, it's funny, like it was this is all about mechanical pacing or not even talking about story pacing. But the, mm-hmm. the mechanical pacing drove the story pacing because so much of what you do in Dungeons and Dragons is about resource management and being able to expend a bunch of stuff. Right. Um, and so in fourth edition, they kind of tried to get rid of this five minute work day by giving you a different tiers of power. So you had at will powers, which you could just use anytime. Right. So like you could just spam, spawn, uh, spawn, spam, firebolt yep. all the time. Right. You have yep. certain powers. You're always going to be like able fifth to edition. Every... You can spam right. that cantrip as much as you want. Exactly. And every class had them. That was the other key thing. Yeah. Like you had, everybody had their at will powers that they could use. Ranger, fighter, whatever. Everybody had it. They um, reskinned them. Pow- yeah, they reskinned those names from fourth edition yes. to fifth edition to make them a little more palatable and less like World of Warcraft powers. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think they were very successful at that because fifth edition feels more like third edition. Whereas fourth edition was like felt like a radical departure. Yes. Yeah. So they also had these encounter powers, which you could use once per fight. And then they had daily powers like your your big power that you can, you know, it's the equivalent of your fireball. You cast it once. It's really spectacular. You feel good after you did it. But because you had this array of, of different powers, you didn't feel like you had to stop as soon as you had expended your things, right? It extended the adventuring day. And I think it it did overall help with pacing. It's just the feel of the powers did end up feeling more like World of Warcraft than Dungeons and Dragons. And I think at least my group didn't like some people in my group enjoyed it. Other people in my group did not, Um, which brings us to fifth edition, which I think I don't know that they've quite solved it, but I think it's it's much better. Right. So you have the idea that um, Players, again, have sort of these at willy type things that they can do, class abilities that they're able to pull off regularly that are more than just like I hit it with my sword, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have uh, things that will regenerate after a short rest. So um, fighters have an ability to recover. Uh, oh, my gosh. What's it called? It's not power surge. Um, there's an ability where they can regain hit points. Right. Um, uh, there's they also have um, an ability called action surge. Yeah. Right. And so those are both usable during a combat. And then at the end of that combat, you can take what's called a short rest, which is like 10 minutes. You can spend hit die to get hit points back. And so you can recover some of those things, but you haven't necessarily expended the thing. You can't necessarily recover the things that have to be recovered on a daily basis, like certain spells. Um, but it gives you a reason to keep going, right? Because you yep. can do that short rest. And if you're the DM, you can say, oh, well, that's when the goblins attack. And it doesn't feel completely contrived because a short rest is about an hour, right? Right. Um, so it's like the equivalent of like you're hiking around Washington, D.C. and like, oh, you know, let's go have breakfast here. And then all of a sudden somebody inter- 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 intervenes and suddenly you can't do it, right? The shop shuts right. down, whatever. Um, and so it feels like it's helped with the pacing a lot. But again, I feel like the pacing challenge it has now is the narrative that yeah, the narrative, right? Which is what's bringing me back to with uh, the Elemental Apocalypse game. 
wanting to move it along faster, right? Like to, to give people the opportunity to like, just put it all out on the line. And I'm looking to be able to turn up those dials in D and D off of the default pacing. Yeah. You want, you want like a superhero game, uh, pacing or like, and I know you've done it fast and the furious type pacing, right? Crazy, you know, or, or even James Bond type pacing, you know, where, You know, he dives off the thing, but no, actually, he's he's got a he's got a line connected to him and he just runs down the side of the building or something. Right. Right. That sort of thing. You know, and, and I agree. Dungeon Dragons, like historically, from the very beginning, it it evolved from a war game. They were doing this stuff for dungeon delving, not necessarily the role playing. The role playing evolved out of all of that. Right. And we all love it. And, and fourth edition came out during the heyday or or the initial heyday of narrative driven games and that's where like in fifth edition where the inspiration die comes from i i'm right. convinced of you know oh definitely <laughs> like spirit of the century uh and later fate both by the same company by the same sort of people i'm blanking on the one that you love uh savage, savage worlds, worlds with Benny's and, and all of these other things like these were still kind of crunchy traditionalish games. And then there were more out there, like almost diceless games, but had a lot of stuff that were, that was narrative driven. The serenity role-playing game, which later on came to become, uh, is it cortex? Yep. Yeah. So cortex, uh, you know, has a lot of that stuff in it. And I think, you know, the, the designers of fifth edition, uh, may have played a lot of these games, definitely knew a lot of people in the industry who made a lot of these games and like took a lot of those ideas and added them to fifth edition. But like, there's not like it, it was, I would say the first edition that really started focusing on telling a story as a group and not just kick down the door, take their stuff. <laughs> there's still a lot of kick down the door to take their stuff but and i can't really say what the modules look like because i haven't played a module um haven't read a modern module in decades it's one of those things where there may be a lot of that stuff in the module but it's not in uh definitely not in the three core books a player's handbook monster manual dmg and I think not. this isn't to say that you can't have great stories in Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I think we've all had great stories in Dungeons and Dragons. It's just mechanically, it doesn't necessarily lean into that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I might be wrong about the DMG. There may be a whole section in it uh, for fifth edition that talks about, you know, pacing your game and running it narratively. It's also one of those things where, oh, this feels enough like first, second, third edition D&D that I'm just going to jump into the mechanics and go with it. I don't need to read how to run a D&D game. Um, right. But new players, new GMs definitely should and and uh, should take inspiration from that. Um, so if I'm wrong, let me know. You know, <laughs> plus we love feedback. So, of course, yeah, of course. The, the next one I have, uh, which I we talked to a little bit about at the beginning, is uh, Mythic D6 by Kafara Publishing, Jerry Grayson. So friend of mine, he goes through what's called an anatomy of an act. Uh, you know, there's there's a whole section on adventure formatting that each adventure has multiple acts that have a specific hook, 
conflict and resolution. So it, it goes back to some of the other things in the other games that we've talked about before. Um, but Mythic D6 is meant for superheroes of different different strengths. And so the anatomy of an act is who, who, what, where, hook, conflict, and resolution. So who is, who beyond the heroes are involved in the scene? Uh, what is the act about? What's the drama or action of the scene? Uh, where does the action take place? Is it a special spot or location? There should always be something interesting about that, the location that allows for good role playing. This is one of the things that we haven't really talked about is like, where does that scene take place? Like, how does that location affect things? You know, like back to your thing with with the end of end of Willow. You know, it made it epic because you were seeing this bleak landscape, uh, bleak and evil landscape. That's the location that's going to affect the scene. What happens if that same scene takes place in a parking lot and they're looking at a Wendy's? You know, it, it completely radically changes how that scene <laughs> right. would, would work. Um, you know, you're probably playing uh, Tales from the Loop at that point, not, you know, uh, not de- trying to defeat the Temple of Elemental Evil. You know, the hook is why the heroes are there. I'm going to summarize. Uh, the conflict is what stands in the way of the heroes. It's the opposition. It's not always a fight. They have to overcome something. And uh, the resolution is what happens if the heroes uh, solve the conflict or fail to solve it. One of the things that's in here, though, and I'm and I'm struggling to find it. If there is nothing really happening in the scene, don't do the scene. You know, if (laughs) if the if the characters are, you know, you can have the resolution where where the the superhero group is eating shawarma in in a ruined <laughs> ruined place but that's like the resolution kind of funny maybe sets up the next game you don't have all the avengers you know piling into like you don't have your your superhero group piling into uh, a super jet and traveling across the world and you have scenes where they're just sitting in the super jet for two hours Right. <laughs> Doing basically nothing. Right. If you have that scene, it needs to accomplish something. You know, right. if you can certainly have a great role playing scene. Maybe you have uh, maybe you have an NPC in there that some of them don't like or or they ha- have issues with, you know, between different characters and they have to result, go through those issues and and argue about things or whatever. But if the scene's not going anywhere, then end the scene and start with the next one that has action, you know, that has some some sort of conflict in it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the cool things about uh, Savage Worlds and the, the name of the, the specific name of the mechanic escapes me, but they inserted a thing just for that. It's basically a transition mechanic that if you are doing the Indiana Jones red line from one country to another, yeah. that's your opportunity to do a flashback in Savage Worlds. You can draw a card, you look it up on a chart, and then a player has to tell some <clears throat> part of their history based on what they drew and they get a penny for it. Right. So, and, and it's cool because it reveals the lost love. It reveals 
the rival, the brother who ran away, right? Like the father who died, um, that great, you know, that great beer I had in that pub in London one time, right? Nice. And it, it helps the pacing because you, you usually it's happening between two action scenes, right? You've just defeated the cultists. Now you've gotten on the plane so that you can go to, you know, Istanbul to be able to deal with the next threat. And right. you have this like nice little break before you have to get into the next development or the next cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to handle it. Or as you say, just don't actually um, don't actually do the scene. The other thing that I think is interesting about the alien role playing game that we didn't talk about, which is they stress that you only roll when it's important. Yep. A lot right. of games are so doing that, that now. And and I fully am behind that. And so that's what I want to do with Elemental Evil or rather with the Elemental Apocalypse, which is you guys are heroes. You yep. don't have to roll to get up the side of this wall. You're going to do it. Right. Right. Now, or if or there's a locked you're trying door, to like, you know, do something more. Yeah. Or there's a locked door in an abandoned keep. You get through it like right. it, you, you, know, you just say it takes you a little time. <laughs> the lock's rusty. You eventually get through it. You, you right. don't roll and then fail. Well, what do you what happens if you fail? Well, you're going to roll again or you're going to roll again or and right. then you're going to kick down the door. You can just narrate that instead. Right. Right. Because because rolling the dice pointlessly actually just bogs the game down and actually sucks the pacing out uh, of right. a game. Right. And you can just say to the player, how do you get past the door? Yeah. Just tell me. Yeah. How do you get past the door? And and the barbarian might go, I kick it down. And you go like, OK. And then you you might there might be some consequences for kicking it down, but you can just kick it down. It's OK. You don't have right. to roll a strength check, you know, or uh, or an old school Ben Bars lift gates roll. Right. I feel like there have been times in Dungeons and Dragons where my characters, our characters were literally just kind of like sitting on the floor playing cards while they were waiting for the thief to finally get past the lock. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to remember what. If there was a movie recently. Or a video game where uh, there was it was kind of like a heist thing and they had to unlock a lock and one of the characters was complaining, well, you know, you were only supposed to take, you said it was only going to take like, you know, five minutes to get past it. And it took three hours, you know, <laughs> and, and they like bicker back and forth. But that's like, that's like backstory. And then right. they get to this next lock. And then the guy, the, the, the character like gets through it in the, in the requisite amount of time. It doesn't take the half hour, but they talk about when it did take the half hour. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so you could, you could have that, that doesn't disrupt the pacing that actually adds to the role playing. But if you actually do the half an hour of roles, that's going to suck all the fun right out of the room. Yes. And everybody's gonna be like, yeah, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. <laughs> yep. Yep. I have a thing on general pacing tips, but I think we've said it already before is like, you know, know when your players are need a break. The way to do it when not kill the pacing is, you know, find a, a mini cliffhanger in the middle of your game and then call a break then or in the natural downtime, like the Indiana red line. You know, you 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 have a little bit of like if you're playing uh, Savage Worlds and you draw one of those cards, you talk about that. And then you take a you take a 10 minute break and then you come back right. and then you right. the plane lands. Right. <laughs> so you, you definitely want to keep the mood high. You don't want to, to bog things down, but also too much 
high adrenaline action is also exhausting. So, right. uh, so breaking it up with a, with an actual physical break for people can get up and move around. Um, especially if you're playing virtually, um, is, is, uh, very important. Exactly. So, so thanks everybody for listening. Uh, if you have feedback, your own thoughts on pacing, we'd love to fear, hear it. Uh, we would also might fear it, but um, we would <laughs> love your feedback. Uh, you can send it to us at podcast at layer or via at layer of secrets. And as we've mentioned before, Twitter's, you know, having some issues. So you can go and follow us on Mastodon. We're over at dice camp. The link is in the show notes. We stream this live on Twitch. If you want to get your fix early and unedited, we are layer of secrets. One word over there. You can visit layer and leave us some feedback topic ideas or your own thoughts on what we've talked about. Thanks, everybody.